Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 368th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Thomas Kopelman. Thomas is the co-founder of All Street Wealth, a financial planning firm for millennial business owners and those with equity compensation based in Indianapolis, Indiana, that has quickly grown to more than $500,000 of run rate revenue generated from serving 70 ongoing client households. What's unique about Thomas, though, is how he's been able to use social media and Twitter in particular to attract over 170 new prospects this year alone by educating and nurturing and making a lasting impression on his followers with relatively short blog posts that may seem rather simple, but hit his specific prospects' pain points so that when they finally decide they need a financial advisor, they wouldn't think about going to anyone other than Thomas for financial advice. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Thomas has built his social media strategy around generating a steady cadence of relatively short but directly relevant to his ideal prospects, blog posts that allow him to sustainably create content in less than an hour and without getting stuck trying to make it picture perfect. How Thomas's ability to maintain his ongoing flow of relevant content compounds his social media impressions has led to an influx of qualified prospects that maintain through both busier and slower months of the year. And how having a hook in the title of Thomas's post that isn't clickbaity but truly relates to his target audience through setup and context and contrasting is key to getting conversations from potential clients on the fence about whether they really want to have a planning relationship. We also talk about Thomas's growth in leads and leading him to create to create an increasingly stringent filtering process to ensure he only spends time with the most qualified prospects and minimizes discovery calls that would otherwise turn out to be a bad fit. How Thomas's planning process builds up to what can be a list of 20 to 40 recommendations, but he uses a quick wins approach to prioritize just a few up front and then may spend literally years helping clients through the rest. And how Thomas used the design platform Canva to create his own customized financial plan template rather than using financial planning software output that not only lays out relevant graphics and action items for each client, but are much more visually appealing and easily digestible than traditional Word or Excel documents. And be certain to listen to the end, where Thomas shares his journey from barely using social media and forgetting his own Instagram password to leaning heavily into Twitter to generate the explosive growth of his firm. How Thomas learned the financial planning process in his early years and used social media to seek out and work with advisors that had to leverage the exact techniques he wanted to emulate while growing their businesses. And why Thomas initially planned to be a solo firm, but changed his mind and ultimately chose to hire staff that he enjoyed being around to get the support he needed to sustain his own firm's growth. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Thomas Kopelman. Welcome, Thomas Kopelman, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to do this. I'm I'm really excited for the 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 conversation today, and I, just as I think about like having getting to talk about what what actually works in growing your practice through social media. Um, you mm-hmm. know, it, it, it's an interesting realm to me because you know, we we do our um, advisor marketing research on the 
on the kids' yeah. platform. Uh, you know, we run this run the study every other year. It's part of a four study rotation over two years, where we just ask advisors like all the different marketing strategies. How much money do you spend on them? How much time do you spend on them? How many clients did you get from them? Like, did you get any clients? Like, did did you, you have a failure where you didn't get any? And so we we measure all these different strategies and social media marketing consistently performs as some of the worst <laughs> results for advisors of anything we we measure. Um it is yep. the it is the most common uh marketing strategy that the majority of advisors fail to get a single client in the span of an entire year of doing it. Uh yep. And you know, and I've long joked, like I've lived obviously very much of a social media world for how I built my, my business or like multiple businesses. And so I used to get questions of like, what is like the magic thing that you that you tweet out that um that gets you that gets business, that gets growth? And I used to joke like, well, you know, there really is no like magic thing on Twitter. There's not like 140 characters. Now you get 280. Like there's not the magic 280 characters you just tweet where like bajillionaires mm -hmm. give you their life savings. <laughs> and then I learned more about your story and like you basically have built your whole business with bajillionaires on Twitter. So <laughs> I'm actually kind of excited now to find out maybe there really is the like the 280 characters that you tweet that gets really affluent people to want to work with you. I just wasn't smart enough to figure out what the 280 characters were. Yeah. Uh, so I'm excited just to learn like, how are you actually turning social media world into business, into clients that are willing to pay material dollars for financial advice? Yeah. Um, you teed me up perfectly. I actually just spoke at the Altruist Conference, and I don't know when this comes out, so a week ago from when we recorded, and I talk about this a lot. So <clears throat> I think, you know, I saw some research that says that 20% of your audience sees each post you put out, right? And so we get all this information from advisors that social media doesn't work, but their content schedule is this, right? Monday, they put out a, a post from the blog post their company wrote, and it's like, check out this blog post on taxes, right? Okay, that's Monday. People scroll past that. They don't want to read it, right? Like you didn't do anything to get them excited to go learn from you. Wednesday, they post something about our clients love working with us because we truly put them first and we're fiduciaries, right? Like, okay, what are you telling me about that? And then Friday, they they link out to something they read that they found that was interesting. And they'll be like, oh, inflation changes to social security. And they do this week in and week out. So they put three posts out. So 12 times a month, audience sees 20% of those posts. So barely any. And maybe they didn't learn one thing from you that whole month. And then at the end of the year, they're like, oh man, social media didn't work. But they didn't add value for anybody. They weren't interesting. They didn't show their personality and they didn't really nurture anybody, right? And so I think there's all these advisors, they say it doesn't work, but they just don't understand the marketing funnel for us as advisors. And this is where I start every speech where I talk about this because um, it's not like you're trying to convince somebody to like buy a t-shirt, right? So you think of your favorite brand, they can launch something brand new, somebody can see it and they're gonna wanna go spend $60 to buy that shirt right? Like that's super easy. It's low stakes. They can return it. You know, worst case, they're out $60. But that's like about it. 
for advisors, it's entirely different. Like my minimum fee is $12,000 a year. Nobody's going to see one thing of mine and decide they need to work with me. And, and in reality, you can't convince anybody that they need a financial planner. And so knowing that, that's where I came to the realization that like all my job is through social media is to stand out. And by standing out, you basically just have to not be selling like every other advisor. And so I just educate people and I nurture them and I teach them all these things that they need to know. So then all of a sudden they get that new job and they have ISOs and they're like, oh, wait, Thomas has talked a bunch about ISOs. He's the one that can solve my problem. And that's all I'm trying to do with my social media is nurture people. So when they hit their pain point in, in life, they would not think about going to anybody else other than me. So I think that's that's interesting from a, a framing perspective. Like I, I, I like how you sort of set that up at the end. You can't convince anyone to hire a financial planner. Your best opportunity, like your best chance is to stand out at least, to be noticed, to be memorable, so that when they have their new job with, instead of stock options, and you've been memorable as an expert in NISOs, and they go, oh, I probably need a financial advisor now because I have to like answer all these questions about what to do with my options. Oh, that guy I've been following on Twitter, he's kind of entertaining and seems to really, really know his stuff. Like, I guess I should probably call him now. Yeah. And then like that, like that's in comes the prospect. Goal. Yep. Exactly. So so then talk to us more about just like how you do that and show up that way in in practice, right? I, I mean I, I don't think most advisors that do the sort of the Monday, Wednesday, Friday thing you you highlighted, like I think most of them would say they're trying to do the same thing. Like we post a Monday article to educate people. We post something on Wednesday to try to differentiate ourselves about how we're fiduciaries <laughs> with high standards who take take our clients seriously. We try to nurture them further with something interesting that we read on Friday. Like, you know, you, you're kind of framing around like I try to teach and educate and nurture and stand out. And I feel like a lot of advisors would say, like, I thought that's what I was doing. I thought that's literally what I was doing in the things that you just said and implied I wasn't doing them. So like, where is the gap? Like what's, what are you doing to educate and nurture and stand out that's different than those of us that do those things that I think we were doing because we thought we were educating and nurturing and standing out, but apparently not. Yeah. What's the difference? Uh, <laughs> I think, I think if you first realize that like the goal of, of social media is, is really to let people know you, but the other part about it is you are, people are scrolling all day, every day, right? Like you're on LinkedIn, you're on Twitter, you're on Facebook. You just continue to scroll until something grabs your attention. And we are fighting for people's attention. And I think that's the hard part, right? So I, I think you can do some of those things that I talked about, but you have to get people to want to read that. And so like, I think working on the hook of your post is really important. When I first started, you know, this was about four and a half years ago, I started on social media. Um, I felt like I was putting out good content, right? Like I'd put out informational posts about HSAs or Roth IRAs or whatever. And I remember reaching out to Samantha Russell and I was like, hey, like, this is something I want to get really good at. Like, what do you see that I'm doing wrong? And she said, your content is really good, but you're not making anybody want to read your content because you're not giving them a reason why they have to, right? Or you're not giving, you're not, there's no hook, there's no interest, you know, et cetera. And so, you know, 
let's say you have a post about HSAs, right? And, and I think it's really great to put out educational information about HSAs, but let's say you wrote a blog post about it. If you just go to Twitter or whatever social media platform you put and you use and you say, HSAs are triple tax advantage accounts. Here's what you need to know about them. Check out my blog post on it, right? Like, I don't think that you got, you, you did anything to get people to say like, oh, I need to learn about this or that really applies to me. So instead, you could write a post that triple tax free isn't good enough. I feel I like, I mean, so. honestly, like I feel like some of us kind of say, like, how is triple tax free not awesome? It's clearly better than tax free or double tax free. Like, is it like that's that's not a hook? I, I don't think it's enough to be honest. And so, like, I think okay. if you rewrite something that's more of like, you know, everybody talks about the tax benefits of four hundred one ks and Roth IRAs and all of these other accounts. But most people don't understand that there's an account that blows both of these out of the water with their tax benefits. Here's what you need to know about the HSA. And people are like, wait, what? Like, what, what's this benefit? Why is it better than these accounts? Like, I have to go read and figure it out, right? And I think that is a way for people to stand out versus okay. writes content that's very similar to everybody else. So, so I'm, I'm intrigued just around sort of the 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 hook as you framed it here because yeah maybe i'm may, like maybe i'm projecting myself my own experiences but you know i i i when i hear hook my brain basically goes to buzzfeed like um yeah uh bob invested in an hsa and you won't believe what happened next dot 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 that's kind of a good hook that would get me to um, read it uh but i like you're framing this to me. I mean, just a little bit differently. It it is more sure. educational and informative in in the way it tackles. This isn't a clickbaity title. This isn't a you know and what happens next kind of thing. Like you're just sort of setting up the situation and the context and the contrast a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the perfect way to describe it. Like my, one of my best performing threads ever has like 515,000 views on it. And here's something I would see people do. So let's say you write this great blog post on tax planning. You could just post a link on Twitter or a link on LinkedIn and just say like, here are 11 of the best tax planning moves for business owners. And maybe you'll get some people to read it. Like maybe they're like, I got to know about this. But I think the people who are kind of on the fence are not going to be the ones that click into it and get more views and more reads on it. And so like my post about it was, I have clients making close to a million dollars a year as a W-2 employee who are taking the standard deduction. Then I have business owners making a quarter of that with hundreds of thousands of dollars in deductions. The tax code is built for owners. Here are 11 of the best tax planning moves for business owners. So I think it's just the way of like setting up your post for like if a business owner saw that and they're like, I don't even know what tax deductions I took or if I really had anything, like I feel like I pay a lot in taxes. I'm a business owner. Like I got to read this, right? I think there's just a way to have those first three or four lines hit people in a way that they think I need to go read this. And then once they read it, they get to know me better. Then they get to vet me of like, hey, is his education pretty good? Is he writing things that other advisors aren't really talking about? And then I'm already starting to be in their mind, right? And then now I cut up that to be a bunch of other posts later on. And now I'm just nurturing them over time. And eventually they're like, well, now my business was, you know, 250,000 in revenue. We doubled. I really need to start to think about tax planning. Thomas is the person I need to go to for help on that. 
Like that's really just the system that I'm trying to create. So, so following this, this, I guess this, this pathway, this thread. So does all of this go on social media? Does this go on your website? What goes on social media versus your website? Like, yeah. What, what goes where? Yeah. So I write, so I have a lot. So I do a blog post every single week, but what I know is that blog posts don't perform well on Twitter, right? Like you just links do not work. So on Twitter, I basically write this blog post and then I re rewrite it and space it well to be a thread or a long post. And I, I put a different hook in because it's kind of interesting to write a blog post and just like have this three or four line hook. Typically it's different. So I, I basically turn it into a thread with a new hook and then I'll go to LinkedIn and I'll post more of like an intro hook and then I'll have the link, I'll set them up to want to read it and then I'll have the link in the comments because LinkedIn that still works well. Um, so blog post wise, that's what I do. And then like I have a podcast every week and I know that posting links isn't going to work well. So what I do is I cut video clips that are like, Hey, some good parts about this that are going to make people want to go watch it. And then like, I'll quote tweet it and say, here's the full link if you want to go watch it. Um, but part of the podcast to me is like, you know, it's doing pretty well. Like I have over 35,000 downloads. I'm happy with that, but I'm also happy with the fact that I can just cut good video from that naturally and post that. And then people get to see me and get to know me and how I talk. And that's a lot of what I'm trying to build with my personal brand and, and my content is just that people really know who I am. So then when they come meet with me or want to work with me, they already know what they're going to get. They already know the type of person I am. They already know the way that I talk and that I can explain things pretty well and in a basic form. And the feedback I get from people is that because they come in from social is they're like, I feel like I already knew you before I met you. And it helps with conversion because when people come to meet with us, typically they already know they want to work with us. It's just what's the fee structure and can I afford this versus like, we don't have to provide any value to them because we've already done that through social media. So, so what's the content, I guess, like cadence that you live in week, I think I'm hearing like weekly blog post and weekly podcast. Yep. So I have one, um, podcast, one blog, and then I have one original long form YouTube video. I have one YouTube short that's original. Um, and then I repurpose an old thread. So I basically have like an original long, somewhat long form piece of content or video every single day. Um, which is obviously really active. And then I have scheduled three tweets a day. And then I tweet after a meeting when I have a takeaway or when a random thing comes to my mind. So probably like six or seven times a day on average, I would say I post at a minimum. Okay. So how long does it take for you to do all this content? Yeah, this is what always surprises people. So I was called out about this on Twitter of like, you spend so much time on Twitter. Like this isn't even like nobody else can do this. And I showed my phone statistics and I average under five hours a week. And so that's also like me scrolling at night because I don't spend much time consuming anymore. Most of my thing is scheduled. And then I go on there and reply to stuff that I need to reply to. And then my podcast, I just show up and I do it for about 45 minutes. My blog posts on average, take me 45 minutes to write and edit at this point, because you know I feel like I've been doing it for so long. 
when I first started, uh, like four years ago on content, I wrote one blog a week and had three tweet or three posts a week. And I spent 10 hours a week. And all I've done is just build it up and consistently do it and never take any weeks off. And I've just now gotten to the point where like things are pretty easy and I've just, you know, I'm used to doing it and I'm not a perfectionist. I am fully okay with putting out good content, not, you know, spending the double the time to go from good to great. And what I've found is, you know, a lot of people talk about like only put out the highest quality content you can. And I've realized that I'd rather put out five times the content and it'd be good than, you know, significantly less and it'd be great. And that's what works. It's worked really well for me. Well, I'm struck by that, that sort of, that was the opposite of the compromise that I thought you were, you were going to say, like, you're, you're not trying to put out like, it was super best, amazing quality thing that you spend an immense amount of time crafting. You've just, or my interpretation, you've got kind of a, a good enough mentality here. Like I'd rather hold a steady volume. That's good enough than do fewer things and trying to make them like the most amazing. Exactly. Because what I realize is that most people don't read everything you put out, right? Like most people are just skimming what you do. So if I'm going to spend double the time to edit the sentence structure on my blog post to be perfect textbook written, you know, blog post, it's actually not going to help me anymore, to be honest. And, And that's at least my, at least what's worked really well for me. I don't know for other people, but I think it's a lot of this is a quality or a quantity game when stuff on social media doesn't stay up for very long. So if it takes me weeks to write one thread, I'm better off getting three threads out over that time that gets to a bunch of different people and teaches them a bunch of different things. And, you know, for me, when I, when I go through social, I don't read, I don't read every part of it. Like I'll look at somebody's thread on estate planning and I'm just skimming to find some key parts. And so I just assume that pretty much everybody is doing things in the same way. Or like I go watch a YouTube video. I'm not going to watch all 10 minutes. And I'm also not going to search if they have, did they have a pause in there? Did they say, um, could they have said one sentence better? Like we're all our own worst critics in these type of things. And I talk to advisors all the time and this is what holds them back is perfection. How do you figure out where to do this quantity versus quality balance? Yeah, I think sustainability is really important. Like, I don't want to set myself up for something that I can't keep doing because uh, when I worked with Justin Castelli, like this was his big piece of advice to me is like, you know, start small, build from there, but have a schedule that you're always going to do. Because what happens with content is it compounds. The more you do, the more consistent you are, the better the results are, the more it gets pushed out. And what happens is, is a lot of advisors start. And then things start to go well, then all of a sudden they have annual reviews and then they take three months off. And it's kind of like weightlifting in the way that like, you know, you take time off, you're not going to be as strong as you were. You might be better off than if, obviously, if you never started and you might be able to get back there quicker, but you're still not at the same spot. So you'd commented that um, blog posts take you less than an hour. Like for a lot of advisors, that's a particular pain point. So- what are, like what are like what are blog posts for you like I, like yep. what do you write how long are they like what are you producing in less than an hour to get through these so quickly 
Yeah. Well, I think one thing that I do that helps me is that I just write in my voice. I think if you go read a lot of advisors blog posts, it really seems like they're writing for other advisors. They're using really big textbook words. They're using acronyms. And what I found is like that actually is not going to help you get clients because all you're going to do is push people away because they can't understand you. And like I tell everybody, if anybody has to Google a single word in your content or your blog post, you've, you've lost them. They're not going to spend the time going to Google something. They're just going to go back to scrolling and go to something else. So I think early on, it took me a long time because I tried to sound like a textbook, right? Like I wanted to have perfect writing. And then I realized that it's better just to come from my voice and be the exact same way that I talk. And so what I do is I, you know, come up with an idea and what when you've done hundreds of financial plans in the last few years, I think it's kind of hard to run out of topic ideas. Um, and what I also do is I have a list of longer form topic ideas, and then I have a list of short form topic ideas. And by short form, I don't mean like it's a really short post. I just more so mean topics that I could write really quickly. And so like, you know, right now, last week I did 20 end of year tax planning moves for W2 earners to make. Next week is, tw- you know, 23 end of year tax planning moves for business owners to make, I can sit down and write that in 10 minutes, you know, max. Because the article is literally just like a 20 item bullet point list. Yeah. And it's also what I'm doing with all my clients right now. So it's pretty easy to talk about exactly what we're doing in every single review. Um, You know, the week before that I wrote how to create your own financial plan. So that's you know, that one was pretty long, but it doesn't take me a long time to teach somebody and look at all the topic areas of our financial plan and talk about what they should do and how they should do it. Um, you know, I did one before that's how to maximize your company benefits. Like we're reviewing everybody's company benefits right now. This is all things that are just in my head. I don't need to go research or look up. And so I just really focus on the things that I know and I'm helping my clients on and I just write about them. So how does this turn into business like okay i get it like social media posts with more interesting hooks to to invite them in then they're a little more likely to click on the article and read the article like 20 year end tax planning tips how does this actually turn into someone who is then willing to pay you many many thousands of dollars a year for advice yeah. like how, how do we get to the um you nurturing them to the point that they're actually ready to engage or even like reaching out to engage them. Yeah. So, I mean, I, every once on social, like share about myself and share about our business and you know, the models that we have in general, but like, I don't do any messaging to people to try to convince them to come work with me. All of my clients, they see me on social, they go to my profile, they click to work with me and they go apply online. And I would say 99% of the prospects I meet with, I've never seen their name on social media before. And this surprises a lot of people because I think a lot of people think you have to be like trying to sell or like, hey, you know, here, you, you should book a meeting with me. I think I could probably help you on this from a post they put. And I just don't. I just think that there's so much there's such a lack of trust on our industry because of long times ago where you just, people wouldn't do good planning or do the best things for them. Um, and so I think it's a really easy way to stand out is to just not be the person that's selling them because they have enough people in their life that are trying to sell them a product or convince them to give them their money to be managed. So I, I hear you, but then my brain goes to, well, countless advisors that we basically 
you know, see in our research very directly that are spending many hours giving away all sorts of content for free to show their expertise and nobody and their phone's not ringing or their emails not ringing <laughs> they're 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 not getting the flow that that you are like they're giving and giving and giving and stuff isn't showing up the way it seems to show up for you so for your process how do they turn into business like just what's the flow what's the sequence what's the funnel yeah. beyond just I'm posting things on my blog and then I'm tweeting it out. Like how do they actually get to uh, become clients? Yep. So basically they go to my profile. I have a link right on it. They click it and it goes directly to our website and it has a, you know, schedule a call with me or let's work together. And because we were getting so many prospects and I was saying like maybe 25% of them were bad fits. I couldn't do 20 to 30 prospect meetings a month and sustain what we were doing inside of the business. So we moved to an application system. So now people come in, we highlight what the fee is. So everybody isn't surprised. Like at the bottom, we say minimum price is $12,000 a year. And we ask questions about who well, they that's are. Like right on, right on the sign up page. Like we cost this right much. on the sign up. Yeah. Because we don't want people minimum. coming in. Yeah. We don't want people coming in and being like, Ooh, like I could, you know, 3000 would have been the max I paid. It's like, well, then why did we really do this? We could have referred you out from the beginning to somebody that maybe would have fit your price point. So yeah, we really asked name, email, where they live, what they do, if they own a business, how many people are there, what the revenue is. We asked their annual income, their current net worth and the type of model that they think they'd want to work on. And then what has led you to looking for a financial planner. And based on that, it comes to me, I decide, hey, that's a good fit for us. We should meet with them. Or I ref I send out referrals to them based on their situation of where they're at that I think would be a better fit for them and why. I mean, how, how do you get, is like, how do you make sure you're getting folks that are a good fit? I mean, aside from, I get if you put like, we only cost 12, you know, we cost minimum $12,000. Presumably you're, you're, you'll screen some people out that, that, that don't want to pay that, but like, yep. I, I guess sort of like simple would ask this, like how do people with money know that you help people with money? Yeah. Well, I think my content is really only like, I always talk about millennials. I always talk about business owners. I always talk about equity compensation. Like I really specify over and over and over who I work with. And then every once in a while, I'll, you know, maybe once a quarter, I'll put out a post of like, you know, who we do our best work for. I also do posts. Like I had one that did pretty well last week of that was like, you know, I, we have a new client who's just had their second successful exit. Here's what we did to help them. And so you're sharing some of the things that we're doing, okay. you know, planning ideas, stuff. So we really like, you know, maybe I've had two retirees reach out to me in the last year, um, pretty much everybody fits who we work with because that's all I talk to over and over and over again. Um, so yeah, we really haven't had much of that issue. Every once in a while we'll get people who are like maybe a little too early on for us. And like, I'm not in the business of charging people more than the value they could be provided. Like if you're 28 and you make $150,000 a year, like a $12,000 fee is just not worth it. Um, and so I'll refer them to somebody else. Um, but yeah, I think it's just because of our messaging. And if you go to our website, our messaging is very clear who we work with too. And I just so, always try to do that. So how do you frame the messaging of who you work with? Yeah, I basically say I work with 30 to 40 year old business owners 
or individuals with equity compensation, like in that age range. It's like very clear, just those two groups. And people say like, well, why both? And couple reasons. One is that both of them tax planning is the biggest value add. And it's where we build our process around what we're really good at. We have, uh, we recently hired somebody who has been tax filing and planning for 10 to hundred million revenue businesses for the last five years. He's going to finish up his EA. Um, and that tax planning is the way they relate. Plus the life stages are very similar. Um, and they just have a lot of changes. So like, you know, earlier on, I worked with more of like the, you know, 25 to 30 year old, they make $150,000 a year. But what ends up happening is in a subscription or yearly planning fee model, they fall off because there's not enough changes after a couple of years. But with the group that I work with now, every year is drastically changing for them. So retention is a lot higher and the value add is a lot bigger too. And I do enjoy the complexity, to be honest. So, so I'm, I'm struck, like that's helpful context that all this is built around a particular market you're trying to specialize in the first place of business owners in their thirties and forties or folks with equity compensation. So I guess no, so now thus, thus the articles of like 20 year end tax planning tips for business owners and, you know, the, the thread you'd mentioned earlier of, you know, uh, uh, the tax code is built for business owners who get more deductions. Yeah. Are you getting yours? Because you're trying to speak to business owners and folks getting equity compensation. Exactly. And on that uh, application, we have the question that says like, what do you, what, you know, why now? What do you look, why are you looking for a face advice now? Every, I would say 90% of the people tax planning is in that part. And so the more I can talk about tax planning, the better, because every single person I sit down with is like, big reason is because our taxes are so high. Like a lot of our clients are a hundred to 500 K tax bills a year. So, you know, if you can add our, our fees, 12,000, if just through tax planning, we can help reduce their taxes a little bit through good planning. Like that fee is worthwhile for them to pay. And it's also like 12,000 sounds like a lot to a lot of advisors, but when some of these people are taking home fifty to you know one hundred fifty thousand dollars a month, it's not really a line item they think about much. So then, what is the? It's like the the prospect flow for you. I mean, we've talked about this a lot in the social media realm. Like, what does this add up to in terms of how much new client activity you've been getting this year? Yeah. So. I would say things have been going really well. Um, if I look back at like the last couple of years, I would say we probably get 10% more prospects this year than last year, but the quality of these prospects are significantly better. They're higher net worth, they're higher complexity. Um, but this year, at this point, I've had 130 qualified prospects come in from Twitter um, and about closer to like 170 to 180 total prospects from Twitter. And the rest of those were just like, you know, probably not worth the fee and probably should be referred out, which is why we started that application system, because that would be 40 to 50 hours of extra meetings, knowing when we could have known, hey, probably not a good fit, no reason to waste their time. We can send them to who would be a better fit for them. And, and what defines qualified prospect in this context? It'd be qualified the ones that we think would be a good person for us to work with based on their answers. So we read those and say, yep, they seem like a good fit for who we work with, you know, ideal target market. Great. We'll sit down and have a meeting with them. So like fit fits our target of business owners or uh, 
uh, equity or equity comp yeah. folks willing to pay the minimum fee seems to have enough income and or net worth to be able to actually pay the fee. Yep, exactly. Okay. So that's a, that's a huge flow. I mean, just 130 qualified prospects throw, flowing through Twitter. So just basically like two or three a week every week that yeah. pay a $12,000 minimum fee. Yeah. And, and to be honest, like I always forget this too, but it's an, it's ebbs and flows. So like I would say of those 120, there's periods where a lot of them come through. There's probably three months where half of them come through. Like I had a month where I had like a seasonal 20, thing or just a like posts that go particularly like viral I, I, that yeah, draw more. I think the months that my like, you know, people talk all the time about why impressions don't matter, but I will say for me, the months that I have the most impressions are the months that I have the most prospects. So it's hard for me to argue and say, like, don't care about impressions because when I look back, like this last, you know, last month, Twitter had been having some issues and algorithm and stuff. And I was like, man, I only have like, you know, six prospects this month, but then I got 10 in the last 10 days. Um, and I had a bunch of good content that blew up and, and did pretty well. And I think that helped push it. Um, but it's just kind of how it works. Like I had a month where I had like 32 qualified prospects, uh, maybe in April or May. And then I'll go through a period where like, I'll be like, man, I only have like five this month. And I'm like, man, is social going to turn around? Is it not working for me? Do I need to diversify? You know, the whole advisor mentality where you get worried that, you know, everything was too yeah, yeah. true all over. My, my business know? hasn't grown at the same pace for the past two weeks. It must all be going down the tubes. I got to do everything different. Yes, exactly. And luckily we have a long wait list. So we bring on a household every single week when we're not in really big annual review cycle. And our next onboarding date is the third week of, of January. So that gives us a good flow of like, Hey, you know, if we ever slow down for a month or so, we're still ahead. Um, but I mean, I'm like, just like every other advisor where things can be going amazing. All of a sudden for two weeks, they feel like they're not. And maybe you, a client fell off and all of a sudden you're in your head and you're, you know, it's what happens, right? Like it's, it's not always this great thing where you're always confident, always feel good about yourself. Like with, you know, every few good positives, there's a negative and the negatives, you know, you feel way more than the positives. So, so talk to us a little bit more about now the, the business and service model of what you actually do for yep. uh, business owners in their 30s, 40s, and equity compensated millennials who pay a $12,000 minimum minimum fee. Uh, yeah. What, what, what's the actual service offering? So um, we have two. We have just a financial plan model, which is actually pretty popular, especially with like equity compensation people, most business owners do ongoing with us just because every year is very different and they, they really understand the value of outsourcing and saving their time. Um, but we do have a lot of equity compensated people who do our financial plan only model. And that's either 8,000 or $12,000 depending on their complexity and where they're at. Um, but both of these models are the exact same process in the beginning. Cause what we believe is that everybody needs a detailed financial plan and, I love the idea of one page financial plans, but it's just for the people we work with doesn't work because they have so many changes needed. So process for this is, you know, they decide to become a client, they get everything into right capital for us. We create client folders, they get tax returns, you know, every insurance document they have, every, you know, investment statement, debt statement, their estate plan, et cetera. We meet and we spend the whole first meeting just going over their goals and values and what's important to them. A lot of advisors do this later in the process 
and I used to, but I found that doing it early in the process, one buys in a spouse who is not as into financial planning because they think you're just going to talk about taxes and investments, but instead we talk about them and what's important. And they're like, Ooh, this is refreshing. But also for another reason is that not a, almost everybody does not get us all their information by that second meeting. So now it gives us a touch point to remind them on here's the added tasks that need to be done before we go through the financials. Um, so that's our second meeting. Our third meeting, we spend the whole time going through all their financials as much as we possibly can. And then after that meeting, myself and my team, we start to go into their financial plan, start to work on it. And then we sit down for another meeting with them of here's some questions we uncovered or things that we still feel like are missing or things that we need to talk to you about and get your belief and viewpoint on. Um, then after that, we work on the financial plan together. So me and my new full-time hire, we create all of them. And then I have a background CFP who reviews every plan. I really love having a bunch of sets of eyes on every financial plan to make sure that we do really good, detailed, deep financial planning. And I know in the show notes for this episode, we have a sample of our financial plan that we use that people can check out. Um okay. So, so folks want to check it out. Just this is episode three hundred sixty-eight. So, if you go to kitsis.com slash three six eight, we'll have a a link out for a sample version of what this what this plan looks like. Yep. Um, and so, our next meeting, then we deliver the financial plan. And our financial plans, like we literally go over everything. We go from their cash to what cash accounts they should have, to how much should be into them, to how much should be saved into them monthly or quarterly from distributions or bonuses, et cetera. Then we go through like retirement planning and what changes they need to make there, Roth versus traditional, max out 401k versus not, you know, everything about that. Then we'll go through all the investment changes. Then we go through all of the debt and what they need to do there. We go through every type of insurance from homeowners and auto, umbrella, health, life, DI, business insurances, et cetera. Um, then we go through college planning and the analysis for their kids. We go through and analyze their estate planning and what changes they need to make there, if they need to get it done and whether they should be considering, you know, trusts or not and educating them on that. Um, we go through surplus planning, business planning, tax planning. We try to be really, really deep with what we do. And we always get the feedback from people that like, wow, this is like a lot. And so what we're finding is that for a lot of these complex clients, like the plans are not overwhelming, but they just need a really set way to implement those plans, which is hard for people who just choose to buy a financial plan, um, which has gone really well. And then we have all the tasks and due dates built into right capital. So we have a really good task management system because before with less complex clients, you can hand them a full financial plan with 12 things to do. But with really complex clients, we can we want to give them all the information, but then we want to boil it down into here's what we need to work on in this season. And then here's what we work on in the next quarter. And so we found like three to five tasks per time is what clients receive really well and they get done. So all this is built around, so like just right capital is planning software of choice. So yep. you said at the beginning, they're, they're, they're putting everything in a right capital. So I'm presuming then like, Right capital portal, right capital account aggregation, um, vault. right capital vault, like all just all that's right capital world for you. Yep. So we do all of that in right capital. Then we obviously use Holista plan for some of the tax stuff. Our financial plan that we custom build is in Canva. Um, 
And we've also like, we had a lot of advisors ask for it. So we sold them and we still have them for sale for people who want them just because we were like, oh, I feel bad selling these to people. But it took me like 25 iterations to get there in hundreds of hours. And for most advisors, like even looking at ours to go create it in Canva, even if they copied it would take them probably 30 to 40 hours to do where most advisors were like, oh, we'd much rather pay for it than do it ourselves. Um, and so, what, so what's the, what's the plan? Like what's, what's so special about the plan that you have like hand, handcrafted this plan with many, many, many hours of, of building, uh, you will, we'll, yeah. we'll get to see in, in show notes for, for people who want to, to go check it out visually, but just, can you talk us through like what, what did you build and how is this different than air quotes, just getting the output from right capital? Yeah. So I think that, you know, I don't think a financial plan is the output from right capital, right? Like sure. Hey, you have a 65% chance for retirement is cool and all. And maybe here's the numbers that you need to change, but like, there isn't a good way to put all of the inclusive, like, where do you put the insurance changes? So, so what is, what is your plan? Yeah. So, I mean, like our first page is kind of like, you know, the key things that you need to know. So it starts with like two key goals. We have like a nice looking thing that has like, you know, effective tax rate and their marginal tax rate, how much room they have left in that bracket, what the next bracket is. We have a good looking spot with net worth and tax allocation and asset allocation. Um, <clears throat> we have like a, you know, key statistics for them, which really for most people is like, What's your investment rate and how far are you uh, you know, away from it or are you ahead? Our next page, we have this really nice looking thing that has all of their goals in like a progress bar and whether it's in green, if they're on track, yellow, if it needs work, red, if they're behind track. We have a calendar that shows them like all the key planning dates of things that they need to be aware of from like, you know, RSUs vesting or ISOs, you know, that when they have to exercise or hitting 529 plans or backdoor Roths, et cetera. The next couple of pages are all the action items. So we have like just topic area cash and then we'll go through that and then we'll have like college planning and we'll have, you know, the bullet points and then we'll have like a really nice looking visual of what needs to be saved per year per kid to be on track. Um, so then we'll go through all those action items and then we have just a bunch of different spreadsheets and, you know, not like projections, but it'll be more spreadsheets of like, you know, we have a client we're working on now who's, he's like, he'll make $1.7 million dollars an attorney, really complex situation. And we had to like help show him exactly. He gets paid four big quarterly payouts, but it's like 15% in Q1, 15% Q2, 20% Q3, 50% Q4. So we have to have a spreadsheet of, you know, you haven't been paying quarterly taxes. Here's how much you need to set aside for quarterly taxes. Here's what's left over. Here's what goes to fund your life. Here's what goes to an account that's now going to be pay out your salary. Here's what goes to pay down your lines of credit. Here's how we're going to amortize those lines of credit over two years. Here's when you get out of debt. Here's what you can start to invest when that happens. Like there's just a lot of things going on where we need a lot of different sheets versus just telling people like, hey, you need to accelerate paying off your debt or hey, you need to set up a salary account to pay yourself. Like, well, what does that look like? How do I do it? Or hey, you need to save for taxes. Well, what dollar amount? Where does that come from? Where the account does it go to? Like, we want everything to be super easy to understand for our clients and visuals are typically the best way to do that. So, so how long does one of these documents end up, end up being by the time you put all these pages together? I would say it's somewhere between like six and nine pages. Like we also have a page at the end that's just like a 
just the, here's all the action items from the plan and here's how we'll prioritize doing them in different phases. Um, okay. instead of them like, well, what are all these action items? Or then we have a page that's like surplus breakdown, bonus breakdown. And then here's kind of like a conclusion of how we feel like you're doing, where you're at, what needs to be worked at, worked on, what worries us. Um, and then that, you know, some of the other, you know, the second page of the goals is like, you know, not overly busy. It has the, you know, the five to eight goals that they have. So there's probably like three pages of action items and charts to help explain those action items. Um, but they take a long time to create for sure. Well, I was going to say, so, so I'm just, I'm just wondering about the creation end. So on the one end, like why Canva and not good old fashioned word, like just, it feels like you're, you're talking about things that classically are stuff we type in the word documents where we can also like copy paste some graphics in. Uh, yeah. So why, all why, graphic- why Canva versus word? Well, we actually have made ours in Word. And I think if you saw the two, you'd be like, wow, that looks like a thousand times better in Canva because it, it really does. Um, it's The long part about it isn't actually putting it into Canva. The long part about it is doing the planning because there's just so much going on with these clients that there's so many parts that we have to look at and help on. Um, because we have the Canva template. You basically just copy that template. It's all in the right order and you just have to change the numbers. Um, but like all of the spreadsheets we make in Excel or, you know, Google sheets, and then we snip them and put them on there. So not every part is in there. It's just like, if you've ever tried to mess with like where the graph goes on word, it's horrible. And Canva, you just drag things to be the exact spot you want. So I don't think it would be right. any word. It's all it. like it's anchored to a piece of text. And then you type words and the text moves to a new line. The graphic moves and exactly all, and Canva, all those you wonderful have- challenges. <laughs> Canva is like you're painting a picture. You put everything exactly where you want it, how you how you want it to look. Um, and so we just like that better. And so our process is like when I work on the plan, I sit down with my new hire and I go through every part of creating the plan so he can learn through those reps with me. And then he takes the written plan. We we don't start in Canva. We start in Word just getting all of the written, like here's the recommended action okay. items and here's what we do. And then he goes and puts it into Canva to make it look good. And I think if you'd look at the plan that we start with in Word and then look at Canva, you'd be like, oh, I can see why you'd much rather put that out because it's way more digestible and it's easier for clients to understand. And it's something that they would you know, keep. And so we always put their, our clients' financial plans in their vault and write capital as well. So then when they have any questions, they always just go right back there to reference it. And also, I guess for us, it makes it easier too when we're prepping for a review, their, their financial plans right there with all their other financial info. So how much time does it take to like just build this custom Canva layer plan output deliverable every time you go through a plan? Yeah, it probably takes, I would say, an extra hour to do that. But again, like we, I mean, when we, I think it's a good selling point for us is like clients come in wanting a financial plan. Like that's what they're asked for. Like, I just don't have a plan. I need a plan. And when we show them this plan, they're like, that makes sense. Like, this is what I need. This is what I'm looking for. And I think, you know, because it's very built around just what they should do because it's got such an action item focus. Yeah. Think if you go through it, they're like, oh, you actually are going to talk about all the topic areas. Because if you sit down with an advisor and the advisor says like, yes, we do financial planning. Oh, yep. We talk about investing. Oh, yep. We talk about cash flow. Yep. But like, how do they know? How can they feel that? So what we do is we're able to show them exactly what they're going to get. 
So then what they can say is, oh, you are going to talk about those things. And then if we didn't deliver it for them, they'd be really mad, right? They would give us a zero star review on Google, which, you know, we've never had any of those. Um, so you, so you actually have like a sample version of the plan that you are pulling out for prospects in a prospect meeting to show them like just this, this is what we do. Yeah, we walk like, so we first half of the prospect meeting is tell me about you, where you're at, you know, your family, you know, where are you at financially? What concerns do you have? Like all the get to know them well. And the second half of it is let me show you exactly what it looks like to work with us. Here's what we do in every meeting. Here's what you do in between the meetings. Here's what the output is. Here's what it looks like to be a yearly client. And the feedback we always get is like, well, hey, you know, you're the first people that ever gave us a tangible feeling of what it looks like to work with you. We really like that. And now we don't have to guess. And so they come in. Because you're just literally showing them, here's the deliverables. Here's the things you get. Here's the the process. Yep, exactly. So- so now talk to us a little bit more about sort of the, the implementation phase. You, you've, you've sort of mentioned a few times like accountability meetings and prioritizing action items into phases and moving through phases. So just yep. take us through all this a little bit more detail now. Like I've, I've, I'm getting sure. to the end of the planning process. I've got my... 17 action items of all the ways that I'm not doing my financial life properly that I should be doing better uh, with you as my financial advisor. So I guess this talks a little bit more. How does this action list get presented initially with like the phases and the priorities? And then how yeah. does this actually start working ongoing? Yeah. So for the ongoing clients, I think the time of the year matters because if you're starting with us in January and you get your financial plan in March or April, the priority checklist is different than if you're getting your financial plan in November, right? So a lot of the clients we're delivering with now, phase one is end of year tax planning moves. Like, have you maxed out your 401k? Have you maxed out your HSA? Have you, you know, if you're a business owner and QBI is going to be 50% of W2 wages, why are you paying yourself a hundred thousand dollar distribution versus paying that all out in salary to maximize QBI? So we'll do all of the end of the year things for a lot of people. It's also rolling old IRAs or old, you know, well, pretty much IRAs or SEP IRAs into their 401k so we can do backdoor Roths for this year. Um, so I think the the most important things is a combo of where are we at in the year? Like if somebody was, you know, we're delivering a plan to them right now, it actually might be company benefits that we really start with. Like, hey, next meeting, let's make sure we implement all your company benefits and do some end of year tax planning. If we meet with you in the beginning of the year, it might be more of like, hey, you know, reallocate your investments, get your 401k percentages set up and maybe switch from Roth to traditional or traditional Roth or whatever those are. But we always start with those like key wins. So I think you have to co combine like, you know, most impactful things based on time of the year with also what they're telling you is most important to them. Like, I think that seems obvious, but I think a lot of times advisors don't listen to what their clients are telling them is most important. Um. And so we just build it out. Like, so we'll have like, here's what we're going to do over the next two months. Okay. Then we're going to meet and we're going to review those things you were supposed to do. What did you get done? What did you not get done? What do we have to help you implement? Great. Now we're setting you up for what you have to do in between this meeting and the next. Here's those action items. Then we meet. What did you get done? What still needs to be there? Is there anything that needs to be changed be over the last three months in your life that now your plan has to change? Then we move to the next phase. And then we just keep doing that until basically their whole plan is implemented 
Um, and then that's when they start to just become regular yearly ongoing clients. How many action names typically end up in your recommendations list? Like I, I kind of joked 17 action names. Is that actually typical for you or is it less or is it more like? I would say more how, how much, on how average. How granular do you usually have? More on average? Yeah, I would say most of our plans are like 20 to 40 action items of things that need to get done. But remember, like with the audience I'm working with, they've typically never worked with an advisor before. They typically have the same auto insurance or homeowners insurance they signed up that was the cheapest. They don't have umbrella. Their businesses don't have the right insurances. They have rentals that are not in LLCs. Um, They have one savings account for everything or maybe all their money's in their checking account. Um, You know, their investment portfolio is all one company stock or, you know, random right. five stocks that make no sense. So there's just like, there's almost never, besides some clients have like a, your debt situation looks good. No changes need to be made here. Most of the other ones have a ton of action items that need to be done, which is why we have to break it up this way. Okay. So, so then how do you do the break up? I guess I guess I'm trying to is like uh you sort of mentioned phases, but is this literally like we have a twenty-five item action list and we just put like five are phase one and seven are phase two and eight are phase three and yeah. there might be eight phases to get through them all because there's just that many. Like how do you yeah, break them down the phases? It. How many phases? Yeah, I would say typically it's about three to five phases, depending on who it is. But we obviously try to group it with like similar themes. So like phase one, let's say we start with phase one is like cash and retirement accounts, right? So it's like set up the right high yield savings accounts, move to get out of one account, move them to all the right ones, set up the automations. And then we'll be like, you know, switch your 401k from Roth to traditional because you're in the 37% tax bracket in California, um, and let's set up your backdoor Roths. Okay. That's phase one. Phase two, now that all of your accounts are the right place, whatever, let's now make all the investment changes we need to make. Okay, great. You know, we did that. Um, phase three, you know, maybe that's all the insurance changes. So we go through all the insurance changes, phase three, phase four might be only estate planning. Cause that's a big topic area and a lot needs to be, right. you know, get done there. Um, and so we kind of break it up like that where, Certain okay. ones are all of them together. And then maybe phase five for a lot of clients is, wait, we're going to go through your business. We're going to, you know, buy sell agreements. We're going to fund it with insurance. We're going to make sure you have the right liability protections. You know, we're going to go meet with the CPA and talk about, you know, maybe why you should be considering moving to an S corp next year or not, you know, et cetera. So how do you set the, I guess the, the priorities, like do do you invite clients to prioritize? Do you prioritize for them? How, how do you set the, the, the order? It's like the sequencing of phases. Yeah, I definitely think it's a combination of the two. I think, um, listening to clients is really important. Like, you know, the one I was just talking about before where they really wanted to work on estate planning first in the asset protection side. But I think a lot of them are like, you know, what is the most impactful thing to do? And so, you know, sometimes the most impactful thing to do is, hey, like we really need to focus on, you know, your investment portfolio first because you've held on to your employer stock and only your employer stock for 20 years or, you know, whatever, 10 years. Or like I had a client come in where he found from an old wallet he had, he found $5 million of Bitcoin and his net worth 5.1 million. Well, let's focus on that, right? Like we need to make changes to that right there. Because if I, if I say phase four is investments and, you know, 
Bitcoin went down 50% because I just threw mine in there. Like, you know, that probably isn't the, the best decision to make. So I think typically it's kind of like cash and retirement savings is where we go first for a lot of people because we can get a lot of that done in like a month. Insurances typically take a longer time or state planning typically takes a longer time. Um, and so we can get a, a good start on getting them used to getting things done pretty quick with those two points. How long do you typically give clients or set with clients to get through all the items in a phase? Like how long does it take you to work through 20 to 40 action items across all these different phases? Yeah, I would say like a year to two years, to be honest, especially because estate planning. I feel like people always drag their feet on estate planning and insurance changes. Like, you know, I can send them to the brokerage and they could like, you know, hey, you're supposed to respond back and, you know, give do your health questionnaire or whatever. Okay, well, you took two weeks to do that. And then they get back to you and they need to schedule a call. And then you take four weeks to do that. And then you do schedule the call. And then they're like, you know, here's the prices. And then you think about it. Yeah. And then, so like, <laughs> you know. The, that's why I kind of start with the most fun things because I know that we'll make the most progress early on by the things that they feel are like moving the needle. And then the things that they're like checking boxes, they know are important, but it's like, they just have to do. We start to move into, into there. So like our first phase is one month. Um, and then we meet and then we give them three months to work on phase two and then three months to work on phase three and then three months to, you know, work on phase four but sometimes, you know, life gets in the way, right? Like I was meeting with a client this week and sister just got diagnosed with brain cancer. And like, that's going to obviously take his mind off, you know, doing his, you know, tax loss harvesting that he's going to self do because he just got a financial plan or whatever. So sometimes things just take over priority and that's okay. So now catch up, how does like ongoing work after you get through three, four, five phases of this? Yep. So all of our clients that are coming on that are paying the $12,000 a year fee, um, they get three review cycles a year. So what that looks like is we meet in the beginning of every year, we get an update of goals, financials, you know, what the year's looking like, you know, we're forecasting for the business, et cetera. And we get them a brand new financial plan for the year. Those plans are definitely can be smaller because we've implemented so much. Um, and so now we do that whole review financial plan inside of right capital in the snapshot, because we can build our own custom templates. It does not work for our original one because that's too much information. But now when it's like, you know, 10 to 20 recommended action items, we can do it there. And so now everything lives in right capital for our review, our ongoing clients with their tasks right there at the top of their plan that they can just mark off and it sends re reminders. And I love that. Um, so we do that, get them a brand new financial plan for the year. Then we meet with them post their taxes being done. We internally review, look for mistakes in their tax return, which we find very often to be honest. And then we explain to them what happened last year in their taxes and we do their tax planning for that year. And then we meet with them in Q3 and we do company benefits, insurances, estate planning, obviously we review investments and tax loss harvesting and stuff and any end of year tax planning moves. And so that's like what our yearly review schedule looks like. But most of our clients meet with us a lot more than that. So they always have a link to our calendar. Something comes up, oh, we're going to buy a house. So how much should we put down? You know, which of these loan options should we pick? Can you connect us to somebody to help on the loan? Or, hey, we need a new car. Or, hey, we're going to hire somebody. How much can we pay them? Do I have to change my salary, et cetera? And so most of those clients, we have about eight, somewhere between seven to eight touch points a year with them. 
And I would say five or six of them are hour long meetings. And the other ones might be like a 20 to 30 minute phone call. And that's why I feel like our fees are pretty high is because our clients need a lot. And it's just, if you, we couldn't work with 200 clients with the needs that our clients have. And so, you know, if you can only work with a hundred clients at capacity, you need to have a pretty good fee for it to be good for you, have the employees that you need and, you know, have the business that you want. What is the, the fee schedule or business model for, for the offering? Yep. So our financial plans, we have the eight or $12,000 financial plans, and those are paid half up front, half on the day of the accountability meeting at the end. We tell everybody you have a money back guarantee. What makes it 8,000 versus 12,000? So 12,000 is typically business owners with like more, typically business owners, more advanced tax planning and a lot like you, like if you looked at who he did plans for at 12,000 versus eight, like you know, the last two we did at 12 were, you know, almost 2 million in income post couple business exits, advanced estate tax planning, just so much more time, like probably double the time. Most people fit in the eight though. I'd say 20% of people fit in 12. Okay. And it's typically more that business owner route with a lot okay. of complexity. Um, and then ongoing, we just have a yearly fee to work with us. That's broken up monthly. Like I really believe that to best handle your finances, you want to make things as as regular as possible. It's why if you're going to save for a $20,000 trip, you should save for that monthly versus all of a sudden December comes and you're going to pay $20,000 harder to plan for. So we don't call it a subscription. We call it a yearly fee to work with us. So $1,000 a month gets you to 12 or $1,500 a month if they're in the $18,000 model. Okay. And where does investment management side of things sit? It, like I'll call it good old fashioned portfolio management. Is that a, a service? Or are you advice only not managing portfolios? Is there also an AUM component? Like how does yeah. the investment management side work? So we have an investment side where we charge 0.35%. And for basically the whole time we've been working, I've been telling people, I don't care if you have us manage your investments. We will show you exactly what we do. If you guys want to self-manage, you can. We want to be planners. And I think for me, for the longest time, it was because I wanted to be the deepest financial planner I could. So I spent all my time learning how to be the best financial planner I could. Um, but I do think adding AUM more over time is going to be a goal of ours, but we don't push for it. Like I never tell somebody we have to manage your investments. We end up managing a lot of clients backdoor Roths just so they don't screw them up, to be honest. But with a lot of our clients with equity compensation or their business owners with a lot of value in their business and their retirement plans, a lot of their like Roths and their taxable accounts are not as big because of where they are. So it doesn't feel like we're giving up much revenue, but I do, you know, we now added an AUM model that we're still going to do all the financial planning for them. They can just pay via AUM and that would just start at 0.9%, but our minimum fee is still 12K. 12k so it would have to be like 13 or 100 or 1.4 for them to like cross over into that threshold so why is why offer it if it's going to add up to the same fee anyways yeah i think it's just like a convenience thing i think you i mean you know this better than anybody but like research shows that aum is a way stickier relationship i think people feel it coming out of their pocket more so mm -hmm. 
with recessions or if they lost a job or something, they're more likely to cut it or their business is doing well or not doing well. They're more likely to cut it than to stick with it. When in reality, they would benefit a lot sticking with it through those tougher times. Um, and so then like eventually my clients will, you know, what if they retire at 45? Like, are they going to want to pay from cash flow? It's basically the same thing as paying from their taxable account because they'd have to take out of their taxable account to pay us anyways. Um, but we're going to give people an option. If they, if they want to only be 12K flat fee and they want to manage their own investments, that is fine with us. We will do the work. We love doing the planning work. If you wanted to pay through assets, you can pay through assets. It's really about giving people the choice of what fits them. And as long as our minimum fee is hit, you know, we feel good about that. And how do you actually do just billing for this at a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars a month? I mean, are you, are you billing investment accounts because they tend to have dollars anyways? Is it more complex because no. like some people are investment accounts and some people are bill my business and some people are bill my bank account and they're all over. Like, how? how yeah, we basically work? do all bank accounts or credit cards from Advice Pay. Um, we don't really do it any from taxable accounts for actually a, a single client. Like, if their 0.35% obviously comes from those accounts, but all of the flat yearly flat fees are billed through Advice Pay. Okay. So, so from that perspective, giving the sort of the AUM only option. Is effectively like that's a new billing like pathway for them because they otherwise don't otherwise probably wouldn't be paying from investment accounts if you're doing mostly bank accounts or credit cards. Yep, yep, exactly. So if they did, it would just you know we'd use Altruist and they'd be billed directly from Altruist, and we do monthly fees on AUM as well. So it's just everything is spread out like that, not quarterly. Interesting. So why why monthly? I mean, this traditional world is is a quarterly AUM fee. What, why monthly yeah. AUM? Well, I could be wrong, but I feel like a big reason why people do it quarterly is because billing has kind of been a nightmare forever. And so going through and doing all that every single month is terrible. But like now Altruist, you basically click a button, right? And it does it for you or people pay for softwares where, you know, you know, I don't know what the research actually says, but I feel like that gets you to a pretty fair average fee. Where like, you know, what if that quarter you're up 20%, but the year you're down 10 or, you know, what if vice versa? So, and we pay ourselves monthly. So I think it just naturally fits the best and is easiest to plan for as a business owner. Well, yeah, it certainly smooths the the cash flow of the business. And, and I guess just in practice, right? I know a lot of firms, you know, multiple fee schedules, multiple breakpoints, um, all various householding issues that we do is we make arrangements with clients and it sounds like just, you don't have a lot of that. Like it's 0.35%. That's the deal. It's a yep. pretty simple Until- schedule at that point. It's like you, 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 I'm envisioning you just, you have less, uh, AUM fee complexity than a lot of us probably inflict upon yeah. ourselves and no. have to deal with. Totally. We totally do. And, you know, maybe over time that'll change a little bit as we start to focus more on AUM. But like for the longest time, I just didn't focus on it because none of my clients were, they were like, you know, they make $200,000 a year. They should just be doing Roths. And, you know, and now the clients that there's a lot more wealth coming into us. Um, I think a lot more people are going to want us to manage their assets and just be like, this isn't really worth my time. And I don't, you know, I want the tax loss harvesting. I want the rebalancing. I want you guys to you know handle all of that. 
And so I think next year that'll start to be a focus for us, but like 97% of our revenue is from our planning fees. So it's not like, a, it's not really it's a, a big, small, revenue. small piece for you guys right now. Super small right now. Yeah. So, so what's capacity in this model? Like how, how many clients can you sustain on this fee model before you, you hit a capacity wall? Yeah, I would guess we're going to be in between 100 to 150 that we can do just because my I have a good team, right? So like, you know, I have a part-time CFP. He owns his own firm, but as he builds his firm, he wanted to like have a second job and you know, it's pretty great. He does he reviews every single financial plan and then some financial plans we just have him do and then we'll review them. Then I have my full-time hire and then I have an assistant who works 10 hours a week. So I can always add those. I really like, you know, Jason Wink is somebody I talk to a lot and I really look up to. And he had a really great firm that they could work with a lot of clients. They had a lot of planners in the background. And so what I'm building towards and what I talk about all the time is like, you know, I want to, part of building my own business is creating the ideal job for me. And the ideal job is a combination of what I think I'm uniquely good at and what I enjoy to do the most. And those two things for me is grow the business through social media and be creating and meeting with clients and talking to them. The rest of the the job, I am totally fine to outsource to people who love that. So my new hire, he loves being in spreadsheets. He loves analysis. That's great. I like getting the analysis to yeah. me and then explaining it to clients. You know, I don't really like scheduling and, you know, some of the admin work and making sure everything's in the client folders and signed and whatever. So I have somebody doing that as well. And so I think if we hit capacity on my hire on planning, I'll hire another planner that will help do that planning in the background as well. And my hire will be able to teach that other person that as well through reps and we'll all meet and we'll all have those reps. And so that's really what I'm continuing to build towards. Um, and then I just think like naturally in a subscription or yearly planning model, we will lose clients. But the best thing is that when we lose clients, we actually get higher fee, better fit clients. And, you know, maybe it's because we have a good marketing funnel and we have tons of people coming in that that doesn't bother me, but, um, it really doesn't like, I feel good about people being okay to be on their own when there isn't a lot of complexity. So where, so where is the business now just in terms of, uh, clients revenue, I guess AUM is not a good, uh, a yeah. way to measure and frame. Cause that, that doesn't fit your model. So can you share like client count revenue where the business is now? Yeah. So we're at about, I'm at just under 70 households I work with, but that doesn't count like people who are already assigned, like who already signed up. That's just like who already started to work with us. So probably, you know, a little over 70, like somewhere between 70 and 75 ongoing households. Um, and started this year at about, you know, I did like 13,000 revenue in January, but about 10 of that was ongoing. December of this month, it'll be about 32-ish ongoing, uh, reoccurring, but we'll do 47,000, somewhere between 47 and 48 because of one-time financial plans. Um, but I think for me in the future, we will hit capacity, but when we hit capacity, that will make three seasons of the year busy, right? So we'll be busy February, March, June, July, um, and then we'll be busy like September, October, November. So that rest of the year, I'll just do financial plans. And so if we can do, you know, 
let's say three financial plans a month at an average of 10,000, that's a lot of added revenue we have. So like we won't be at capacity not working with anybody. We'll just be at capacity for ongoing clients. And I just, you know, I, you know, three years ago, I said, I never wanted to be a business owner. And then Justin was like, you know, man, you should go start your own business. I think you're ready for it. And basically kind of pushed me to go do it. And so like, I have this realization that like right now I don't want to hire more advisors and manage more advisors, but that might change too. But the best step for me forward is to build my whole client revenue. So I have the ability to make that choice at that period of time. Um, and I know you've had Adam Kamala on. He's he's kind of a mentor of mine. I spend time with him, and he's done a really good job of moving to be, you know, business owner and not the advisor. And you know, the planner I have working with me now, he's on every client meeting. So there is a reality where he might take over half those clients, and then I have room for another half of clients. Or maybe I'll bring on another advisor and say, you take the equity comp people, and I'm going to stick with just business owners, and I'll only bring on business owners who are willing to pay me twenty five thousand dollars a year or something like that. I just, I know that I don't know for sure what it's going to be, but I'm just going to keep building and kind of see what excites me. Cause I think that's part of it is I just want to do something I love. And right now I I'm doing exactly what I love, but if I get to the point where this doesn't feel like something I love and I need to either work with less clients or I want to move more into business owner route, I'll let myself pursue that. And so 70 households now, is that all is that a mixture of ongoing and one timers? Like that's just that's all. That's just ongoing. Ongoing. Okay. That's just ongoing. We probably and, do like, I would say this year we probably did maybe twelve to fifteen one time plans. Um, it, it's a it's actually a pretty popular model more than I thought. Um, and I know a lot of advisors are anti one time plans because they're like you know the, the second you hand somebody a plan it's outdated. But like, I really try to foreshadow the next few years for them. And they're like, hey, well, maybe in a couple of years, my spouse would want to stay at home. Okay, well, here's what I would do if that's happened. Here's the levers I'd pull back on. Or, hey, you know, maybe I want to start a business. Okay, well, when you start that business, here's what I would think about. Here's what I would do. Here's why I would do Roth conversions. Here's why I would do, you know, only Roth contributions in those years. I try to like help, you know, not be like, I'm only going to help you and exactly what you're facing now. But I want to help you handle what you think is going to come. And then if you need my help, just reach back out and we'll figure out a way to help you in that situation. As it sits now, what surprised you the most about building an advisory business? I think for me, I really didn't expect to grow this fast. Um, when I started, I was like, I just want to be a solo firm. I don't really want to hire anybody. Well, like solo with trading, but I didn't really want to hire anybody. I just wanted to you know, make $100,000 and work with some clients and enjoy my life. And all of a sudden growth just really, really happened. And I had to figure it out. You know, I had to figure out how do I work with these people? What's the right process? You know, I had to get used to like, you know, are you going to lose some clients while you figure it out? And of course you're going to lose some clients while you figure it out. Um, and I think you know, for me, a lot of this has just been like, I want to be the absolute best I can possibly be at this job. And so I created some study groups with some really great advisors where we could run through, you know, talk about some client cases, you know, not obviously like specifically them, but like here, how would you think about this? Um, I think there's just, there's so much to know in this industry. And then all of a sudden you feel like, you know, it, and you get a new client who has some nuance you've never heard of and you have to go figure it out. And, you know, I feel like every year you realize there's more that you don't know and that's exciting and, and fun. And, I also didn't re like, didn't think I would like doing social media. Like before I started creating a social media, I didn't even use it. Like I, I lost my Instagram password two years before that, never logged in. 
I didn't spend a minute on Twitter. I didn't like social media. And then I realized like, man, I love creating content and educating people. It's like, you know, for me, one of the most fun things I do. And, you know, I would say those are the biggest things that surprised me, I guess. Interesting. So what, let's ask a little more, like what changed so much in social media realm to go from, I'm the person who doesn't log in and look to social media at all to, uh, you know, I'm building my business on social media. I think it like for me was how much I was learning. So I feel like, you know, for a long time, people are like, man, Thomas knows like so much stuff. But in reality, I was just like writing about what I was trying to learn. And to become a really good financial planner, there's so many topic areas. So, you know, I'd go through a series and write about estate planning. I do five parts and start with the basics, you know, all the way up to the complex. And for me, that was my best way to learn. And so I think I started to get addicted to the learning and how much faster I could learn by instead of just, I listen to a podcast or I listen to a blog or I talk to a client about this. It's, I do that. I have to refine it, learn more about it, write about it, make it concise, and then apply it to clients' lives. And so I just realized like, wow, this is the best learning mechanism possible. And it's really fun for me to just create and and share those things. And I don't think there's any denying that the the more positive feedback you get, the more fun it becomes. So what was the low point for you on this journey? Um, I mean, I think there was a few low points, like all the way from I first started a broker dealer and just like hating everything about it. And I think this is why I'm so passionate about social media is because I started in a sales world where, you know, I talk about this all the time, but basically like, you know, project 100 started, you know, blah, 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 call everybody, you know, and I already had a bad taste in my mouth too. Then I remember sitting down like a couple months into my job. I just got back from my best friend's wedding and my manager was like, how many leads did you get at the wedding? And I was like, leads, like I was at my best friend, I was in the wedding, like no leads like that's, and they're like, you should come away from every event with leads. And right away, you know, I was like, you know, everybody sits here and talks about how valuable financial planning is. If it, if financial planning is so valuable, why am I selling it to everybody I know versus attracting the people who need my help? And so to me, I was like, well, how do I do that? Social media is the best form for me to attract people who want my help. And so I think a lot of it was that my managers, they were like, nobody, we, we built these businesses without social media. And I'm like, okay, you built these businesses before social media existed. So like, I don't know if that's a fair reason to say it. And, you know, they're like, you don't need it. And, you know, we can't do that here. And so I think part of it was a little stubbornness of me of like, I think this is the best way to do it. You're telling me that I'm wrong. I'm going to prove that this is actually the best way to do it. And so I left that company. And that's why I joined Justin is, you know, I had a bunch of different offers to go work more at a corporate firm, be a junior advisor, but I knew that Justin was what I wanted to be. He was a great guy, a great advisor, had great content. He built things the way that he did. And I begged Justin to give me a job. I asked him, will you pay me $2,000 a month? He basically said, no, I begged, I begged him like five times. And eventually he's like, sure, like you can come work for me. You know, I didn't care at all about the money. All I cared about was the learning. And so I think maybe low point was like feeling just depressed about the fact that like, I'm just harping on all these people and selling to them. And I just felt gross doing it and not, didn't feel like me. Um, and then I don't know if it was a low point, but like when I was with Justin, um, you know, we were very siloed. Like I was working from home a lot. Like I'd see him probably, you know, we talk once a month. And so 
I loved it. Like I was like, he gave me all of the kind of the frameworks of what to do, but also let me be me and work on my clients. And when I needed him, he was there, but he had a lot of guilt. He had a lot of guilt that he wasn't being a good manager and that he wasn't putting enough time into me and that it was unfair. And so he was like, you know, I don't really want that guilt. And you're also ready. You learned everything from me. You need to learn. You need to go start your own firm. And to me, it was like, I never wanted to start my own firm. I had a great there. We had a great assistant who worked with us. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm 26 years old and I need to go start a business in financial planning. Like that's kind of scary. But it ended up being really the best thing for me because it drove me to be like, I have to figure this out. And that's typically like what ends up the best for me is like, I'm not like a textbook learner. I'm like a learn by, I have to do this. And so it just pushed me into doing that. Um, And so those were like, you know, maybe two of the low points, but they were also the biggest things that helped set me into the right direction of what I, I, I needed to do. So what else do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you from five or six years ago? I, I think one of them for me is um, I wish I would have started creating on, on Twitter earlier, but I didn't because other advisors told me it was a bad idea. So early on, I had advisors tell me that LinkedIn is where you get clients and Twitter is where you network. And that's how it works. Listen to me. And I was like, okay, like, you know, I guess, you know, that's what they say. And then eventually I was like, I just like that. I just don't believe that. Like I don't spend any time learning on LinkedIn. I spend tons of time learning on Twitter. I think there's probably other people like me learning. And so for two years, I just didn't spend any time there. And then last January of you know 2022, I was like, you know what, I'm going to do this and I'm going to really get into it. Um, and obviously that ended up becoming like the best thing for my business. And so I think part of it is like, you know, there's older advisors that you should absolutely listen to and, and take things from. But then there's also people who are like, you know, willing to give advice who are maybe not the best people to get advice from. And you need to understand like, you know, if, if Michael Kitsis is giving you advice, you should probably listen. But if random advisor who you know nothing about is going to sit there and DM you to stop doing something. Maybe they're probably not the best person to listen to because you're always going to have, there's always going to be opinions. And like, I get people on social media telling me all the time, like that they hate my social media, but I have tons of other people who absolutely love it. And so I'm like, I'm probably going to tune out the people who are just going to hate on other people or you know, I have people on social media that try to call me a liar and that my business isn't where it's at and I'm making up numbers and I'm like, okay, I don't know where you say that. Like I'm, you think I'm going to sit here and risk my reputation. And when I get audited that they're going to look and be like, you've been lying about your firm. Like, I don't think that'd be a risk that I'd be willing to take, but it's funny that people will tell me that I'm lying. Um, so I'd say that's probably one And two is like just understanding the power of study groups. I remember when I was talking to you at Future Proof, you mentioned like this study group that you've been in forever. And um, I would say study groups are by far the most valuable thing for me because I've created ones with advisors that all have different things that they're better than me at. And I maybe I have certain things I'm better than them at and we can all learn from each other and be brought up to speed quicker. So I think like, you know, advisors getting started, you start your own firm, like you need people around you that can help you because your spouse doesn't understand this. You know, most people don't understand the financial planning and be able to help you. And you're going to face challenges that you need people in your corner that can help. So how did you find your study groups? So if you have a lot of advisors, like that sounds awesome. 
I yeah. don't know where <laughs> to find one. For sure. I think XY, obviously, like I, I'm in that Facebook group. I see people talk about it all the time. But for me, I actually found advisors that I admired and I just messaged them and said, hey, I'm starting a study group. Like, I'd love for you to join. And some of them were people that I vetted through social media and I knew really well. Some were a couple advisors that weren't big on social media, but like I had talked through like some complex stuff with them. Like, you know, I shout out Ben Lake all the time. He's an advisor that I partner with on like my ultra high net worth clients. I work with him at their firm. Um, and I would say nobody has taught me more about financial planning than him. And like, he's in my study group. He's the first person I go to when I ever have a complexity that I don't know about. And somehow he always knows the answer and having somebody like that is just really, really valuable. And, and just like, what does the study group do? I mean, just, I'm just envisioning like you reach out to them and said, Hey, I like be in a study group with me. What, what does that mean? <laughs> what do you do? What was the ask? What was the commitment? Yeah. I, so we were going to do, I think early on you can do a lot in a study group, but eventually like every two weeks is not, you're not going to have enough to talk about. So I think it was a mix of like, we did every two weeks and like one time we'd be like, somebody bring some complex financial planning thing they're trying to solve and let's talk about it together. How would you think about this differently than me? What am I missing, et cetera? And then the other time would be more about like practice management. Maybe we're talking about like, you know, what does your process look like? Maybe we're talking about marketing. Maybe we're talking about like, what does your first meeting look like? How are you converting? Or, you know, all of those different types of things. And we did that for a while. And now it's like, you know, hey, if you have a client case that you're struggling with, you know, talk about some hard parts with you and let's explore this together. Or, you know, everybody shares like one key win they have and one thing they're struggling with that they love to get other people's opinions on. Um, I do think that's the hard part is like picking the framework. Because if you just say like, after four years, you know, if you just show up and you're like, hey, we're going to talk, you might have nothing to talk about and then people are yeah. less excited to come. So you need yeah. at least some framework. And I do think, you know, Jacob Turner's in mine and his idea was like this, I think this would work really well if we all talk about like one win and it's nice to share wins with other people who get those wins. And then also one thing that we're struggling with that we want to figure out. And so like maybe for somebody that's like, I just feel like, you know, I'm not converting enough people in that first meeting. Okay, well, show us your first meeting and we'll give you feedback on what we think that you could do better. Or like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm losing clients after year one. I'm not able to con convert people to stay for year two. Well, like, you know, what's your language and what's your service model? And are you proactively reaching out? Do you have every client know what they're going to do in each part of the year, et cetera? So we just work through things together and you just get a lot of little nuggets from other people who are, you know, in a similar and, spot. And, and the big thing for me was being with people who are in a similar spot. Cause I think it's really easy to either be like the farthest behind in a group. And then like, you kind of feel bad cause you had no value. Or if you're the farthest ahead and then you feel like you're like teaching a class Neither of those are, you know, work out very well. And then you either are like resentful that you are just giving everything and getting nothing, or you have some guilt that like, gosh, I'm just like, you know, every question's about me and these basic things that everybody else knows. And I don't think either of those end up working well. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that always comes up is the, the word success means very, very different things, to different people. And so you're on this, this wonderful path for successful growth with the business itself. How do you define success for yourself at this point? I think to me, it's not like a size of a business or like an income level or a revenue level or an AUM level. Like to me, so when I was in college, I did six internships and I hated every single one of them. Like 
dreaded every day going to them. Like I didn't feel like I had any impact. I didn't feel like I was doing something interesting to me. And so I was like, man, is this going to be my whole life? And then I went to my first job and it felt like that's what it was. Like it just felt like something I didn't enjoy doing. And now I feel like I'm one of the lucky few who loves what I'm doing. Like, you know, if you'd ask my fiance, she'd say I, I work way too much, but it's because like, I almost feel like I'm playing a video game, not like I'm working a job. And so to me, like a lot of the success, the definition of success to me is like every day, like I do enjoy what I'm doing, but I'm also realistic that like, of course, 10% of the job is going to suck. Like I might have to do random paperwork for a client that's not fun to do, but that doesn't mean I don't like my job. It just means that there's always going to be some parts of the job that are going to be a job. And the other part about it too is like, I maybe take different advice than others um, where you're like, don't ever hire anybody, you know, or a friend or a family member. I want to build a business that I'm proud of with people I love. And I've done that. My planner that I hired, he is one of my best friends since I was 11 years old. He had a cancer scare in college that I was the only one with him in the hospital. Um, like one of my absolute best friends. And it's been amazing. We have such a good trust level. I know how hard he works. We're able to do that together. My dad's the outsourced CFO for some of my clients. I get to work with him. Like I really enjoy spending the, like getting the added time with the people I love. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Thomas, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Michael. And as always, I'm, everybody tells you this, but thanks for what you do. You know, I've always loved listening to these episodes and you know, they've been really impactful for me and, and my business. Awesome. Well, thank you. I'm sure this will be for many who listen to the future. I hope so. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.